Now I turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians, coming closer to the end of the letter. Just a few more sermons left in this series. We come to 1 Corinthians chapter 50, or chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. So we'll be finishing chapter 15 this morning. So this is God's holy word again, as he inspired the Apostle Paul to write to the church at Corinth. And therefore we should attend to its hearing, its reading with reverence. For it is the word of the living God. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Let's pray that he will bless its reading and its hearing. Lord, we do indeed pray that you would bless us now, That as your word has been read, as it is preached and exposited, as we hear, that each of us would be blessed to hear the truth from your word, to apply it well to our lives, remove from us any distractions of mind, help us to have our minds now set on heavenly things, that we might not only Be hearers of your word, but hereafter be doers of it as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in verses 20 through 23 of this chapter, we saw that Christ's resurrection guarantees the resurrection of all who are in him. And that will be a resurrection like his one to everlasting glorified life. A physical resurrection, one of the body, continuity between our bodies as they are now and the body that we will have in the world to come, but a radical change as well. So three weeks ago we learned of the fact that there is a continuity between the current body then and, and our resurrected body, but that the resurrected body is far more glorious, like the difference between the seed and the plant that it becomes. 
the body will be raised in such a way as to be suitable for the glorious presence of God. No more sin or sinfulness, no more pain or suffering, death or decay. And today we learn more about that victory over sin, death, and corruption. As we look at the Greek text of of this passage, we find that the grammar draws our attention to verse 53. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. That conjunction for, the Greek word gar, uh, tells us that verse 53 is meant to explain the previous verses, really verses 50 through 52. And the truth of those verses rests on the truth of verse 53. And then everything that follows verse 53 in this passage is the result of verse 53. The so in verse 54, literally in the Greek it's and when. And the therefore in verse 58, they show us that the what follow verse what follows verse 53 relies on verse 53 for its truth. So that's a good place to start then with verse 53. Uh, sometime back we saw that it's necessary to believe in resurrection because if resurrection isn't real, then Christ did not rise. And if Christ did not rise from the dead, he could not be our savior. And thus, we're still in our sins. And so Paul made the point that, that it's not as if you could have faith in a Jesus who didn't rise from the dead and still go to heaven spiritually and not have to worry about resurrection. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, nobody's going to heaven. Therefore, after this life, our only possible destination would be hell. But we saw Christ did rise from the dead, and therefore so will his people. Today we see that it's necessary that Christ's people be raised from the dead and glorified, because this glorification comes along with that resurrection. And we see that in verse 53. And why is that necessary? We're going to see in this passage, number one, It's necessary because we cannot inherit the kingdom of God as we are now in our present state. We have to be changed. Number two, we'll see it's necessary because God has ordained that his people be made suitable for his presence. Number three, we're going to see that it's necessary to display the victory of Christ over death. It's for the glory of Christ that we'll be raised from the dead as well. And also then, point four will also be for the glory of Christ to display the victory of Christ over sin. And then lastly, we'll see that our resurrection will be necessary to encourage the good works of Christ's people here and now. So again, we see that it is necessary that Christ's people be raised from the dead and glorified as he was. Indeed, I actually wanted to title this sermon The Necessity of Resurrection, but I had already used that title for the sermon from verses 29 through 34. But this is all about the victory of resurrection as well. All these things are tied in tightly. But let's look at verse 53. Again, this this is where the grammar draws our attention uh, with that conjunction for at the beginning. Everything in this passage before and after verse 53 really depends on the truth of verse 53. And so let's look there first. For this corruptible must put on incorruption... And this mortal must put on immortality. There's a language there of uh, something like the changing of clothing. 
Something is taken off and something is put on. But really key to our understanding of what's going on here you know, is that verb must. The, the verb in our language is translated into that. It's actually the rendering into English of a word in the Greek, day. We would spell it D-E-I. In the words of the expositor's Greek testament, that word day affirms the necessity of something. And in fact, they say in this context, it affirms the necessity, uh, a moral necessity of resurrection. And that's because this word often carries with it the sense of a moral necessity. You and I are fallen, we're corrupt. Sin and sinfulness are ever-present with us. Even though in Christ the sin nature is put to death, it's still like a dead body dragging upon us. Which is why Paul in Romans 7 asks, who will deliver me from this body of death? Before going on and saying, well, it's Christ that will deliver me from this. I can't deliver myself, of course. But in Romans 3.23, he reminds us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And notice that it's past tense, or uh, and it could be a, a sense of an ongoing condition. All have sinned. But then present tense, he says, and fall short. We currently still fall short of the glory of God. In our present state, we cannot be in God's glorious presence. In Romans 5.12, through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Since we fall short of God's glory, since we are all sinners still, we are not fit to be in his holy presence. If we're to be in his holy presence, which is his intention for us, he has to make us fit. Because, of course, as we've seen before, because of our sinfulness, we can't make ourselves fit for God's presence. He has to change us. He has to render us suitable to dwell in his glory. And so it becomes a moral necessity. We must be changed. It becomes a moral necessity that our sinfulness be done away with. We've been justified in Christ. He's taken care of the legal provision of us being declared righteous, dealing with our sin in that sense, in God's courtroom, as it were. But he also is progressively sanctifying every true believer in this life. And then eventually, he will fully sanctify, and that's subsumed into the notion of glorification in Scripture. So everyone in Christ must also be glorified. The corruptible, as Paul says, must put on incorruption. In other words, we have to move from a state of being corruptible to being incorruptible. To being capable of sinning to being incapable of sinning, for one thing. We have to be made incapable of sinning or decaying, even. Uh, So even the effects of sin that we feel in our bodies right now, as we age, as as we feel our joints getting stiffer and more pained as we grow older, as, as we injure ourselves, even when we're young and very fit, we can still injure ourselves. And we know that as time goes by, it's harder to heal from those injuries. All of those things, the effects of sin, that has to be done away with for us to be suitable for God's presence. The mortal must put on immortality. Our bodies must be made immortal, no longer subject to death. 
And why is that necessary? Paul gives us in this passage five reasons that it's necessary that that would be the case. Five reasons why it's necessary for Christ's people to be resurrected if they've died and to be glorified whether they've died or not. The first one we see here, we've already touched on, is we cannot inherit the kingdom of God as we are now. We cannot inherit the kingdom of God in our present state. Verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. The second half of that verse is helpful in our understanding of the first half. Because we've already established in this chapter that Paul's not saying that we cease to be physical beings and we'll just be spirits floating around in the clouds somewhere. No, it's necessary that we actually rise bodily from the dead. So he's not saying that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God in the sense of saying your physical body will not be there. But rather we see flesh and blood was a common expression that referred to human weakness in our earthly state. That has to be dealt with. That has to be done away with. Our corruption, both in terms of our sin, but also in terms of the fact that our bodies break down as a result of sinfulness in the world, refers to our tendency to break down physically and to sin morally. Without resurrection and glorification, we are simply unsuitable to dwell forever in God's presence. In fact, Our bodies, as they are now, couldn't even withstand being in God's glory. This is why so often people in the Old Testament, when they just get a glimpse of it or a reflected sense of the glory, whether it's in a vision or just in the angel of the Lord, God himself appearing as a man with the glory veiled, they will often, when they realize they've seen God face to face, say, how is it that I'm still alive? Or like Samson's father, Manoah, saying to his wife, well, we're dead We just saw the Lord. And of course, the Lord had just promised that they were going to have a child. And so his wife sort of brought him back to his senses and said, no, God's going to keep his word. We're going to have a child. We're not going to die now. But without resurrection and glorification, we are simply unsuitable to dwell forever in God's presence. So that's the first thing that we see, the first reason that resurrection and the glorification that comes with it are necessary. Number two, resurrection and glorification are necessary because God has ordained that his people be made suitable for his presence. So these two things go hand in hand. You have to be resurrected and or changed to be suitable for God's presence. And God has ordained that that would be the case. Therefore, you're going to have to be resurrected and glorified. Resurrected if you die before Christ returns and glorified either way. Because God has ordained that his people be made suitable for his presence. Verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We shall all be changed. Remember, mystery in the New Testament doesn't mean something that's completely beyond human understanding or something we will never know. But it means usually those things which were unclear in the past but have now been made clear or are being made clear in Christ. So we didn't understand this fully before, Paul is saying, but now we see clearly we don't all have to die. There are going to be believers alive when Jesus returns, but we all have to be changed. 
For those who have died, that means resurrection. For everyone in Christ, it means glorification. Verse 52, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. That's a parallel to what he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, about the, there's the trumpet, the voice of the archangel, and Christ comes down to earth, and the dead in Christ rise first, and then everyone who's in Christ meets him in the air, and so dwells with him forever. Jesus is the prototype of those who rise from the dead to a glorified life. As we see elsewhere in Scripture, everyone will rise from the dead and be judged. But those who are in Christ will rise to this glorified life. And Jesus is the prototype of those. Daniel 12, 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. As Paul says, all believers, whether alive in, when Christ returns or having died before that event, all will be changed. And that means that, of course, those who have died will rise from the dead. So like Jesus, believers who have died will rise to everlasting glorified life. There are other cases of resurrection in the scriptures where people were raised simply back to an ordinary life as we know it. Lazarus was raised by Jesus, and then he died, and we're pretty sure we know where his grave is on the island of Cyprus. Other people in the scriptures who were raised from the dead, Eutychus, he fell out of the window, fell asleep during a sermon, fell out of a window and died, he, he was raised from the dead. And he's not still around. You're not going to go to Turkey and find Eutychus still living in the city of Troas or anywhere else if he moved. He presumably grew old and died a natural death. But Jesus was raised to glorified life, incapable of dying again. The Reformation Study Bible puts it like this. So Jesus was the first to be raised from the dead to a glorified existence, no longer subject to death as the punishment for sin. When he returns to this world, he will raise his servants to a resurrection life like his own. He will indeed raise the whole human race from the dead, but those who are not his will be raised for condemnation and subject to the second death for their sins. Christians alive at his coming will at that instant undergo a marvelous transformation. There is a continuity between the mortal and immortal body. Jesus was raised in the same body in which he died. Paul compares the mortal body and the resurrection body to a seed and the plant that grows from it. We saw that earlier in this chapter. While there is continuity, there is discontinuity as well. Our present bodies, like Adam's, are natural and earthly, subject to weakness and death. The resurrection body, like Christ's, will be spiritual, created and sustained by the Holy Spirit, and will belong to the eternal, imperishable, heavenly order. After his resurrection, Jesus' disciples could recognize him, despite the differences in his new body. In the same way, Christians will recognize one another, and there will be joyful reunions when the separations caused by death are ended. This is apparent from 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. 
In this passage, Paul assured those who were grieving that they would see their Christian loved ones again. So for those who are alive at Jesus' return, Paul says, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So, of course, Jesus is the prototype of those who rise to glorified life, but we would see biblical figures who have endured or undergone something like this as well, Enoch and Elijah in the Old Testament. Believers who were taken out of the world, taken into God's glorious presence, though, of course, we'll live in the new world, it'll be Christ coming down to us in the end, But believers who are alive at Christ's return will be given, like Enoch and Elijah, presumably glorified bodies that could dwell in God's glorious presence, glorified natures without having physically died. Enoch walked with God and was no more, for God took him. It'll be something like that for us. Enoch and Elijah were taken up to heaven without having died. We will be made suitable for God's presence without having died, either if Christ returns before our natural time of death. Made suitable for God's presence without death and subsequent resurrection. That's what will happen to living believers at Christ's return. Whether we've died and been resurrected or not, we will all, Paul says, be changed. Again, from the Reformation Study Bible, glorification is the work of transformation that removes all sin from us and makes us fit to be with God in perfect communion. The saints will worship and serve God with a nature made whole and a heart set free. Our desires to be with God and enjoy His love will be fulfilled in the presence of the triune God. Paul's description in Romans 8.30 of the process whereby God saves His elect concludes with a striking past tense, He also glorified those who were saved. Literally, glorification is still in the future for everyone other than Jesus himself. Paul's thought, apparently, is that our glorification has already been decided by God as part of his sovereign plan and can be spoken of as absolutely certain. God has ordained that his people be made suitable for his heavenly presence. And so it will come to pass. So resurrection and its accompanying glorification are necessary. Number three, we see that resurrection and glorification are necessary to display the victory of Christ over death. Verses 54 and 55. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, so it's, it's going to be a fact, and when, that's, when that has actually come to pass, Paul says, and this mortal has put on immortality, Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? We'll talk shortly here about what Paul means, what scripture means there by the sting of death and Hades. But Paul is citing two Old Testament verses there, or passages Isaiah 25, 8, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And Hosea 13, verse 14, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, 
I will be your plagues, O grave, or Sheol, translated here as Hades. I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. God saying, I will have no pity on, on death and the grave. They'll be destroyed. Now the reason for the difference there between how we see Hosea 13.14 translated in the New King James Version and what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15 it's really a very close paraphrasing here of the text of the Septuagint, the Old Testament translation into Greek that was available to the Corinthians. And so he's just pointing out this is a fulfillment of Scripture. Remember that verse 26, or from verse 26, that the, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And Paul is saying this will be the, its fulfillment. Literally in the Hebrew, God says he will be the plagues of death itself. He's going to bring about death's own death, in other words. And the destruction of Sheol, of the place of the dead. It connects to Revelation 20, verse 14. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Hades is simply the Greek word that was commonly used to translate the Hebrew word Sheol. Sheol or Hades referring to the realm of death. And depending on context in scripture, it can mean death itself. It can mean the grave or the burial place or the place where the spirits of the dead are. At the resurrection of Christ's people, death itself will come to an end. That's the point. The final resurrection, therefore, fully and finally displays Christ's victory over death. The only death left are for the the wicked who receive the second death, which is a separation from God's glory and his glorious presence forever, knowing only his wrath. But the final resurrection and its glorification that comes with it fully and finally display Jesus' victory over death. Fourth, resurrection is necessary to display Christ's victory over sin. Death is the wages of sin, Romans 6.23 tells us. For death to be conquered, sin had to be conquered. So, resurrection proves Jesus also conquered sin. The sting of death is sin, Paul says here. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Sin is the sting of death. Death is depicted in these verses as a bee or a hornet or a wasp or a scorpion whose stinger has been removed. In ancient literature, even the the bite of a venomous snake was often called a sting. The venomous sting of death is sin. Sin brings about death. And that is the law, as it were, under which we operate. We're under the power of death because of sin. With our sins paid for in Christ, though, the sting of death is taken away. Even if you die, as Jesus said, yet shall you live if you're in him. And then when you live, you shall never die. The sting of death has been taken away. It can no longer hold anyone in Christ permanently. Nor can we be cast from God's glory forever. The the second death of the lake of fire 
The sting of death has been taken away. The sin that was exposed by God's law has no lasting power any longer. Its wages, death, has been defeated. Therefore, sin itself has been defeated. Resurrection will display to all that Christ defeated sin. And then, finally, resurrection is necessary to encourage the good works of Christ's people in the here and now. Verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You can be steadfast and abounding in service to God because you know that service now is not in vain. As we saw earlier in the chapter, of course, if, if resurrection isn't real, we might as well eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Just enjoy your life now because this is the best you're going to get. But with glory to which to look forward, you can take courage no matter what happens to you in this life. You can be steadfast and immovable from a righteous position. Because even if it brings on you dire consequences from the world around you, ultimately, who cares? What's it going to matter to you in the world to come? Notice here, Paul calls them my beloved brethren. He, he appeals out of love for them that they be firm and not be moved from the true gospel to a false understanding of resurrection, for example. That's been his main point, his main concern in this chapter. And he calls them to abound in the work of the Lord. Because if they trust in the Lord and they know that they will be raised to new life, they can now abound in the work of the Lord, understanding that, as he said earlier in in this book, to paraphrase, he's laying up, to use Jesus' words, he's laying up treasures in heaven. The servant of God is laying up treasures in heaven. You're building on that foundation, not straw and sticks and wood, but gold and silver and jewels on the foundation of your salvation in Christ. Here Paul says, abound in the work of the Lord, that is be plentiful, be overflowing in doing the things that Christ has commanded. Looking to the glory to come, you can serve Christ faithfully and abundantly even in the face of great opposition from the world around you. Because you know that such labor by God's grace cannot be in vain. You're not earning God's goodwill towards you. It's by his grace that you're doing those good works in the first place. But God is gracious to reward service to him. And he uses your works here and now for the advancement of his kingdom. So your work in Christ's service is never going to be in vain because God empowers it. God ordains that it be fruitful. Romans 8 verses 33 through 39. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. You know, Christ is the only one who has the right to condemn you now, and he died for you. That's what Paul's saying. And furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God and who makes intercession for us. So he's even pleading with your judge now for you. Paul goes on and says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? All the dangers that this world can bring to you? He says, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Notice also Paul doesn't say 
Christians never suffer or die for the sake of Christ. Yes, they do. And yet, he says, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The only thing that could separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus is Christ himself, and he died for you. That's what Paul says. Not even death itself can separate you from it. So take courage and serve him faithfully now. The resurrection of Christ's people and the glorification that comes with it, both for believers who have died and risen and for those who may be still alive at Christ's return, that must happen. It is necessary because you and I cannot inherit the kingdom of God in our present state. We still carry sin and corruption with us. Our sins and sinfulness have to be removed from us before we can dwell in God's glorious presence. The death and corruption that come from sin have to be done away with. Because God has ordained that his people will dwell with him forever in glory, that will be a fact. So we must receive glorified bodies which are immortal and incorruptible. Moreover, the final resurrection will show that Christ truly and completely defeated death. He will be glorified fully by it. Death can no more hold his people than it can hold him. Which means, if death is ultimately powerless over Christ and his people, that he has also conquered the cause of death, which is sin. And so Christ's people are spurred on now to do good and great things in his service, knowing that they ultimately have nothing to fear. Do not fear what man or Satan or death itself could do to you. Christ has conquered. He's conquered all of these things. And in him, you are more than conquerors, Paul says. Christ has already won the victory. Someday that victory will be fully displayed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the promise of resurrection and glorification that comes with it. They're vouchsafed to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Grant that we might now walk in the power of that resurrection, serving him with our eyes fixed on the world to come. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.